Philosophy is about the study of knowledge, or how thinking works. It can be applied to the study of many other disciplines, like law, linguistics, and even science. Our Sound of Science team had a chance to visit the Rotman Institute of Philosophy, where we spoke with researchers pushing the frontiers of our philosophical understanding in neuroscience and physics. Hello, and welcome to The Sound of Science, a radio show that invites students, faculty, and community members of London and the greater world to join us on a quest to explore a question about our world by hearing from Western University researchers and professors. My name is Max, and joining me is Mike, and we are your hosts for this episode. Joining us in studio is also Andre, who is the research mind behind this show and all our previous shows. He's the one who helps us bring science research into an accessible form, which we're sharing with you today. This time, we investigated a different type of scientist, one that studies the philosophical implications of various scientific discoveries. Joining us this time is a philosopher who has studied Isaac Newton's approach to the scientific method. He's written extensively on the development of gravitational and cosmological theories and walks through the fascinating process by which Newton has come up with some of his most powerful theories. But first, we'll hear from a neuroscientist who stumbled upon quite an odd phenomenon. He and his team discovered that parts of the brain can be recruited for multiple functions, like how fingers can touch and feel things, as well as help with counting. It turns out that this supports a theory in philosophy called embodied cognition, where our body seems to affect our thinking. We join Dr. Michael Anderson now at the Rotman Institute to chat about his research. We are joined now by Dr. Michael Anderson, professor at Western University and Rotman Canada Research Chair in Philosophy of Science. His research is located at the intersection of psychology, neuroscience, computer science, and the philosophy of cognitive science. His most recent book, After Phrenology, Neural Reuse, and the Interactive Brain, outlines a novel framework for understanding the overall functional organization of the brain, places its function in evolutionary context, and demonstrates how mechanisms originally evolved for the support of sensory motor coordination have been co-opted to facilitate language and mathematics. Welcome, Dr. Anderson, to our radio show, Sound of Science. Thank you very much. Appreciate the time. All right, so let's get started. So I was looking a bit into your work, and I heard about this concept of neural reuse. And usually when we think of the brain, we think of um, you know different parts, different lobes doing certain things, and specialization. So this sounds quite different than what we're used to. Can you talk a bit more about that and explain how the brain might accomplish this? Sure, yeah, both in the popular imagination and, and of course, some scientists also continue to uh, believe that this is the case, that individual bits of the brain are specialized for one thing and one thing only. Um, the evidence, however, is not, I think, pointing in quite that direction. So <clears throat> let me tell you uh, just uh, at the outset what the kinds of things I do empirically. So my work um, is not experimental primarily. It's more computational. And what I've been doing over the past several years is gathering up many, many, many different uh, neuroimaging studies, right? studies that look at what parts of the brain are active under what circumstances, uh, what psychological circumstances, and building a very large database of those and then looking for patterns of activation across many, many, many different studies. 
When you look one study at a time, it does indeed look as if individual parts of the brain are specialized for one thing, because you don't get all the brain active um, for a particular uh, psychological task. You get very particular regions of the brain active, and consistently, often across people and across time. And so you might infer from that, ah, well, we've got a collection of specialized modules. When, however, you look at the brain across hundreds or thousands of studies, what you see is the same regions active across multiple different tasks, and sometimes very different tasks. So somatosensory things and mathematical things. And that's a really interesting um, uh, uh, observation. And uh, the way I think, what I think explains it is this principle of neural reuse that you've mentioned. Neural reuse is the idea that um, as a way of making very efficient use of, of very metabolically expensive brain tissue, uh, the brain organizes and reorganizes itself uh, over time as you learn to do new skills and, and, um, and, 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 and new tasks by taking the same parts of the brain that were active in something you learned in the past and uh, incorporating the same piece into different networks for different purposes. So what you have is uh, differences in cognitive function being more a matter of differences in network architecture rather than which parts of the brain, individual parts of the brain, are active in a, under a given circumstance. So when a part of the brain is reused, is it reused for a function of similar purpose or a completely different cognitive domain? I would say that's still an open question. Uh, certainly in some cases, we seem to have evidence that it's being used not necessarily for a similar psychological function, but in a similar way. So for instance, I mentioned um, uh, there's a piece of, um, uh, of the brain that's involved in what's called finger gnosis, which is just your sensory awareness of your fingers, and also in mathematical tasks. And those are quite different things, you might think. Um, but what we think is that maybe what's going on there is that particular part of the brain implements a computational structure called an array of pointers. So basically just a kind of storage mechanism that turns out to be useful for both keeping track of your fingers and for keeping track of uh, mathematical you know, numbers. That's one possibility. Uh, I think it's also possible that um, pieces of the brain end up doing very different things in, under different circumstances because of the way that the pieces of the brain interact with one another and constrain one another's uh, activities. Uh, we don't have a lot of empirical evidence for that uh, at the moment just because it's very hard to know what parts of the brain are actually doing at this point. And so it seems almost like development plays a role here since, um, you know, initially when we're, uh, when we're first born, I suppose, uh, our somatosensory cortex with the finger region sensation um, might not be as familiar with the mathematical function. So perhaps this is something that you know, is learned through time, through schooling and mathematical education? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I came to this uh, particular piece of research uh, by, in, by uh, collaborating with actually a professor at, at King's College here, uh, Marcy Penner-Wilger. And uh, in her lab work, they found that um, uh, children's ability on the finger gnosis tasks, right, their ability to sort of track their fingers, uh, varies considerably. And that it predicts mathematical achievement up to two years in, in the future. So it's, there's definitely developmental uh, issues here. And so we know also that the brain is a pretty metabolically expensive tissue to maintain, uses most of the energy in the body. So does this, might, does this have a relationship to the concept of neural reuse? Yes, I think so. I, in my view, the reason that reuse is such an important developmental principle for uh, uh, generating brain architecture is because 
parts of the brain, right? The brain itself is so metabolically expensive. And so to make the most efficient use of that tissue, uh, uh, it makes sense to I incorporate pieces of the brain in as many different functions as is possible without making everything a mess. So now we want to talk about what has been labeled a term called embodied cognition, a theory that says features of cognition, like concepts in our head, are shaped by aspects of our body, like how our motor system interacts with the environment. Could you tell us a little bit more about embodied cognition and how you came to discover this? Right. So there's many different sort of takes on embodied cognition as sort of a big, big tent idea. But yes, one of the basic tenets is the notion that uh, thinking, uh, cognition, it doesn't rely on the brain alone. But uh, the way you think and, and the things with which you think, to put it in a different way, um, uh, cross the brain-body environment barrier. So here, in a simple idea, um, the notion, take, it, take doing long division. Most of us don't do it in our heads. Most of us, in fact, can't do that in our heads. There are people who can. Um, so what do we do? Well, we get a piece of paper out, and we write it down, and then we go stepwise through the algorithm to, that we know will give us to the answer. And the idea here is, the idea, at least from the perspective of embodied cognition, the idea here is that the cognitive system that's solving that problem is not the brain. It's not in the brain alone, right? It's in the world as well. It involves the hands, it involves motor skills, uh, and it involves the algorithm and the steps and the piece of paper. And it's that whole extended system uh, that is the cognitive system that is doing the work. So does this have a relationship to neural reuse? Well, I think so, because it looks to me, at least by analogy, that something similar is happening when the brain reorganizes itself, finding the right pieces to fit together to do the job it needs to do, and when we, um, are humans, figure out how to do complex things by, by, by creating an extended cognitive system using parts of our brain, parts of our body, and parts of the world. So the, the thought is, at least one, one way of thinking about this, is you've got a, a, a common principle of organization. How does it you build cognitive systems that applies as, as being explanatory at the neural level, uh, at the genetic level also, by the way, um, and, but also at the macro level. And so does the concept of embodied cognition have anything to do with evolution as well? Yeah, I, I think so. The, here again, if the theory is right that... Um, uh, this principle of reuse uh, emerged in evolutionary time because it was an efficient way of marshalling resources. Something like that same logic might apply to the right the animal level of or organization. Right? How do you marshal what resources you have in the world, in your body, in your uh, nervous system, to solve the problems of surviving um, and socializing and on all the things that have to happen um, uh, for a species to thrive. So still on the topic of neural reuse, um, maybe I'm a bit skeptical still of this. Um, so I know, you know, like uh, Penfield, who um, activated different areas of the brain electrically simulated, kind of demonstrated um, that certain areas are responsible for certain things. And um, this is something that neurosurgeons do as well when they're operating on a patient. So like, what's the time frame for neural reuse? How, um, how can it be that um, these kind of tr tried and true concepts that work right now, um, is your research consistent kind of with, with uh, other research in this area as well? Sort of yes and no. So um, I mentioned already that when you do one study at a time and you're looking for some one particular thing, 
then it's easy to convince yourself that you found the one function that a piece of the brain participates in. So you're electrically stimulating, you're looking for the motor responsiveness in an animal, uh, and indeed you see that when you stimulate up here, the fingers twitch, and when you stimulate in a different area, it's a, an elbow movement, for instance, or your toes, or what have you, and you think, ah, we've got this somatotopic organization of the motor system, and each part is specialized for controlling one part of the body. Um, when you look, however, across multiple studies, looking for different things, you'll find that parts of the motor system are also involved in language comprehension. Right? Parts of the motor system are involved in, uh, in action planning, even abstract action planning. So uh, it, we have to keep in mind that theories of the brain, theories of things as complicated as the brain, this is a general principle as well, but theories of things as complicated as the brain really need to wait for all the evidence, or at least more evidence, or evidence across multiple kinds of studies and multiple kinds of trials. So focusing in, in on one even classic case, uh, like the, the Penfield homunculus, um, uh, I, I think that's too narrow an evidence base uh, for coming to conclusions about brain function. So it's almost like there's quite a lot of emergence in the brain and you, you have to look at the system as a bunch of complicated parts. Yeah, the brain is dynamically reorganized itself minute by minute. Different parts of the brain are, are cooperating in different patterns as you do one thing and then switch tasks and do a different thing. You get a reorganization of what's called functional connectivity, that is the, a measure of, of, of what is connected to what in order to support a particular, uh, particular function. Uh, and you can, you can track this um, in, in neuroimaging studies uh, over time. Now to look more broadly at your role in examining neuroscience topics with a philosophical approach. Do you feel like neuroscience lends itself to philosophical studies? And can you tell our listeners more about why you enjoy your research topic? Absolutely. There are a couple of different uh, ways in which neuroscience and, and philosophy sort of productively interact. One is in a field called the philosophy of neuroscience, um, and that's primarily concerned with understanding how neuroscience works as a discipline. What's the evidence? What kinds of inferences are uh, compatible with the evidence? What kinds? Of, what styles of thinking um, you, you might want to apply to different kinds of, of neuroscientific evidence? How is it that we um, can bring together evidence from very different kinds of studies into one coherent picture of the brain? How does that work? So topics like that, you know, that's sort of the philosophy of neuroscience. There's also a field called neurophilosophy. Uh, and neurophilosophy sort of stands that on its head. Neurophilosophy asks questions about how findings in neuroscience can help us directly address philosophical questions. So um, there's a subfield called neuroethics that looks at the way the brain responds to, say, moral dilemmas. And that might tell us something about moral reasoning, which is something, obviously, that philosophers are quite interested in. Um, there's also issues of, say, consciousness. Uh, that's a very much studied here at Western. There's a very uh, active group uh, uh, right below us here at, in the, uh, Rotman, uh, below the Rotman Institute in the, in the Brain and Mind Institute that asks how the study of the brain can help us better understand what consciousness is, what different kinds of conscious states there might be. Uh, so those are just a couple examples of the, of the kinds of things that, that uh, allow for this productive interaction between what ostensibly could be two very different fields. And so what are the applications you see for this research? Might it be able to be applied in a clinical setting? 
Yes, I think I think the as pure science goes, uh, this is going to help us understand how the brain organizes itself, how that organization changes over time, uh, what are the mechanisms that allow that to happen, and as we come to better understand that, that absolutely would well will in fact I think have clinical applications. Um, even already now, there are some groups who are interested in um, developmental uh, neural disorders uh, and also uh, uh, post. Uh, brain injury recovery that are using some of the basic ideas of neural reuse to design better therapies um, uh, to, to help patients uh, like that. All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Anderson, for your time with us today. You bet. Thanks for coming by. You just heard Dr. Michael Anderson, professor and Tier 1 Canada Research Chair at the Rotman Institute, who shared with us how his research into neural reuse relates to the topic of embodied cognition.